Well, hello everyone. Happy Friday. We hope you're having a great Friday on this absolutely beautiful day in October. Welcome to this week's Fireside Chat. I'm Lisa Stearns here with Tim Cross. He is back with us again this week and uh, we will be updating you today on the latest on COVID and how many cases we do have within the university system. But we'll also be hearing um, from our four units as they feature success stories from across the Institute that highlight the teamwork, creativity, and dedication of our faculty, staff, and students. So a few reminders, remember to keep your audio muted. Use the chat function in Zoom if you wish to ask any questions. Um, you can send those to me privately or you can post them publicly. A recording of this session will be made and it will be posted to our UTIA coronavirus website, which can be found at utia.tennessee.edu. So Tim, what does the case count currently look like for the university and the institute today? Thanks, Lisa. Good afternoon, everyone. And uh, we'll pull that case count up in just a minute. I wanted to, to be sure to start off today by thanking uh, Dave White, uh, Doug Edland, uh, Doug Bonner and Marcy Souza for uh, taking care of last week's fireside chat. Heard a lot of positive feedback. They must have done a great job. In fact, a few suggested maybe we just let them take over from now on. So uh, that was really uh, nice for them to do that. Uh, truth in, uh, in advertising here, I took a little mental health break last week and took a couple of days off. So I felt a little guilty about skipping out, but uh, it was nice to have a break. And I came back feeling... Uh, Maybe uh, maybe not like normal, but uh, but feeling a lot better. And and I hope each of you has had some time to take some of those uh, well deserved and much needed breaks uh, from time to time as well. So let me jump right into uh, where uh, where I see uh, the data right now in terms of our COVID cases, and and we'll probably move through fairly quickly because I'm excited uh, to be able to uh, share with you today. Uh, some of the more recent uh, success stories that, that we've uh, had going on within our units. So if you look at the charts today, you're going to say, well, it sounds like the same old story. And to some extent, that's, that's really how I would summarize things. Uh, if you look at the number of active cases at the university level, virtually identical to last week, which is very similar to the week before and similar to the week before that. So we're at a sort of a maintenance level here, it seems, of... Uh, you know, about a half a dozen uh, positive cases among employees and somewhere between 40 and 60 cases uh, of positive uh, coronavirus uh, amongst our students. So I think, again, very low numbers, uh, which is very positive uh, all in all, uh, reflects very well on, on our continuing practices to keep uh, the number of cases low. And if you look at uh, the number of uh, isolations, uh, much the same story there. So Again, almost identical to the past four weeks uh, with uh, a couple hundred students and, and somewhere between 30 and 50 uh, uh, employees, both faculty and staff, uh, in isolation uh, as of today. In our institute, uh, we're, we're probably doing even a little bit better. Our numbers are very low currently with only one active positive case uh, among uh, institute employees and currently uh, about 11 employees uh, who are in uh, some uh, status of isolation. So we're, we're doing quite well. Uh, we're, we're really keeping our numbers low and you all have been doing a great job of, of helping us to achieve those numbers. Like last week and the week before though, if you look na uh, nationally, uh, the trend is not good. It continues to go up and, and we're currently trending 
uh, back to uh, where we were uh, late July, early August, uh, on the order of 60,000 cases a day in the country. A lot of that is now showing up in rural areas, whereas uh, last summer it was much more isolated or concentrated in our urban areas. Uh, so that's certainly not good. Uh, it's certainly something we all need to keep track of. At the state level, similar pattern, maybe not quite as uh, a severe uh, uh, or uh, dramatic, but we're also, once again, back to the same levels we were seeing at the state level uh, back in late July, early August, uh, with upwards of 2,000 cases per day. So with all that said, I think what it tells me is, you know, we're continuing to do the right things uh, here on campus. Uh, we're uh, continuing to keep our own uh, employees, uh, faculty and staff safe. Uh, we're keeping the student numbers very low, and yet we're doing it in an environment that seems to be becoming increasingly risky, if you will, uh, with the number of cases spiking again. So Keep, keep doing what you're doing. Don't, don't let up. Don't relax too much. Uh, think about who you're interacting with and how you're interacting with them. Uh, keep your masks on. Uh, and if we'll continue uh, as we have been the past four weeks, I see no reason that our uh, experiences uh, would change dramatically. Uh, so uh, that's really uh, a summary, uh, Lisa, of our, our data this week and the experiences that we've had uh, uh, during the past week. Well, that's great advice, Tim, and you're right. We all do need to stay vigilant. Um, we also know that during this pandemic, our faculty and staff have really stepped up to deliver some real life solutions in new and different ways. So today we'd like to highlight some of these successes. Yeah, it's, uh, you know, I, I get so much uh, uh, positive feedback from the work that's going on across the Institute, whether it's at, at our research centers, whether it's in the College of Veterinary Medicine, here on campus or, or in one of our extension facilities, just a lot of positive feedback. Folks do recognize that uh, in spite of the coronavirus, there's, there are great things happening uh, within the Institute. So it's really uh, exciting to be able to share a few of those things. Uh, several uh, months ago, we shared some examples of, of virtual uh, innovations that were taking place. And I think we've evolved in the coronavirus now to the point that what we're gonna feature today are largely face-to-face -face, uh, examples of uh, uh, successful but still innovative programs. And I think, uh, again, that shows how we've evolved uh, throughout this uh, pandemic as we've learned more, as we've adapted, and, and I'm excited uh, to see uh, the, some of the work that's taking place. Obviously, in, in 30 minutes, we can't share all the great things that are happening. So for all of you that I know uh, have great stories to tell, I apologize that we can't get to every one of you. But uh, I hope that some of uh, what we shared today will, will cause you to say, gosh, uh, that, that uh, feels a lot like what I've been doing, or that uh, is similar to some ideas or practices I've been following, and, and hopefully be a bit of a reinforcement or a recognition of your work in that way. So with that said, uh, I'm going to ask uh, each of our units to share uh, one, uh, one or two uh, highlights. I'll let uh, our deans or a representative from the dean's office in each case uh, introduce uh, the person that's going to share their program, and we'll move through these pretty quickly. Uh, apologize that I'll have to sign off today at 2.30, but that'll give everyone an endpoint uh, and a target to shoot for. So uh, without any lengthy introductions, let me introduce uh, the famous and the uh, very effective uh, Dave White, uh, fireside chat moderator extraordinaire, 
Uh, Dave, uh, could you introduce uh, our Ag Research uh, Program highlight today? Yes, absolutely. And good afternoon, Dr. Cross. Good afternoon, Lisa and UTIA. Uh, it's my pleasure to introduce Dr. Curtis Luckett, who is an assistant professor of food science and director of UT's uh, UTIA Center for Sensory Science, which works with corporate partners in the food industry to help them understand food consumer preferences. Uh, a little bit about Curtis, his research program focuses on consumer attitudes towards foods, food texture perception, and olfactory psychophysics, which is, sounds really interesting. It's about smell. So Curtis will talk a little bit about that. Uh, he, he's agreed today to talk about some of the creative approaches that the, the center has used to continue operations uh, despite the restrictions uh, associated with the pandemic. So Curtis, thanks very much for joining us today. Well, thanks for having me. Um... So yeah, my lab's really interested in how food is uh, stimuli for humans. So how do people perceive food and beverage? Do they like it? Do they dislike it? Is it you know too fruity, not fruity enough? Something like that. And so as you can see, they would need to consume a food or a beverage at some point in this research pathway. And so it's been a big challenge for us to try to um, you know do this in a safe, in a you know in a reproducible manner. Um, so our research can lead us down many different pathways as far as like, you know, looking at how humans eat and, and drink and that type of stuff. Um, we do a lot of support for uh, different food science operations going on. So we have food chemists developing new ingredients or food engineers developing new food processing methods. And that stuff hasn't stopped. Um, we also have plant scientists that we work with that are, you know, doing trials to optimize the flavor and texture of Tennessee grown produce. And those, those, produce items are still coming out of the field. So we needed to find a way um, to kind of get to a, a place where we can still provide them with that data, even though we can't really bring people into a closed environment and have them remove their masks and eat food. So um, one of the things that makes our research very difficult is humans are easily biased when they're eating food or they're drinking something. Um, there's a, there are a myriad of different factors that can kind of throw off your perception of a food or beverage that are going to give you an erroneous conclusion of what you think you felt. Um, so actually, I could pick up my first slide. <clears throat> that helped. Yeah, so we use a ton of different things. So we use lighting. Um, so for instance, with beef, people have a lot of a, um, assumptions with a beef steak that's maybe cooked rare or cooked medium well. So, or even with something like a pepper, a red pepper may be perceived to be spicier than a green pepper, even though the spice content is equal. So we modify lighting, we use complex serving orders, we blind participants to almost anything that we think could lead them astray in their food or beverage perception. So um, once COVID hit, we had to modify. So that comes up to the next slide, is our new lab structure, um, which is a lot different. So we have an outdoor sensory lab where people now can drive up and pick up their samples and take them home. So it's um, been a really unique change. We went from being a group that really tried to minimize and just eliminate all bias from human judgment of food and beverage to a group that's now embracing its bias. So we've worked with our corporate partners and our research partners to see if we can leverage this idea that people are now eating these foods in their home, not in our lab anymore. So obviously we've lost control over some of the the bias that we try to eliminate, but is there a silver lining? And so we have kind of found this. And so we've started looking at things like preparation and eating behavior. So for instance, we can now start to ask questions that help our clients understand uh, how the product's being used in the home. So an example of one of those questions would be, 
how long did this meal take you to prepare? So we had um, a, a corporate partner of ours that was um, interested in rice. So they were doing they had a couple of varieties of rice, a couple of different styles of producing this rice. Um, but typically in our lab, we would just put it in a styrofoam cup and slide it through a, a door and a person would, would just consume that. Now we have the people actually cooking this rice in their home, getting a lot of data about, okay, it cooks up well, it doesn't cook up well, my son dislikes it, my husband likes it, these types of things, which you know can be very valuable for a company trying to position their product into the marketplace. So that's kind of how we've switched gears. Um, we all have gotten a lot more sun this, this year than usual, and uh, it's been challenging. Great, thanks, Dr. Luckett uh, and Dr. White as well. Uh, good, good uh, information. Uh, you'll probably have a lot more volunteers to come uh, do a drive-by taste testing now. So uh, we'll look forward to some new opportunities uh, for to taste test some some new products uh, or new uh, new techniques. So thanks a lot for sharing today. Next, uh, I'd like to call on Dr. Jim Thompson uh, from our College of Veterinary Medicine and ask him to introduce uh, uh, the next uh, segment of our program. Hey, Senior Vice President Dr. Cross, how are you doing today? Couldn't be better, Jim. <laughs> I'm just out here at the farm. That's fantastic. Well, um, I've got uh, two really talented individuals here that work hand in glove to uh, provide um, essential surgical and anesthesiology training to our veterinary students. So I've got uh, Genevieve Boussiers and uh, Jimmy Hayes and uh, they'll lead you through how we actually teach our students surgery and anesthesiology and how we accomplish it um, effectively in COVID-19 times. So with that, I'll turn it over to Genevieve and Jimmy. Hi, good, good afternoon. afternoon. <laughs> so we have a little PowerPoint uh, presentation to go over a few slides and pictures with you. Uh, I'm uh, in charge of the anesthesia course. Uh, I'm Genevieve Boussier. And Jimmy, you want to introduce yourself? Yeah, I'm Jimmy Hayes. I am the uh, laboratory uh, coordinator. Make sure all the students in the vet school get through all their hands-on laboratories. So if we can go to slide, the next slide, please. So this is pre-COVID. Uh, we had 40 to 60 people in our room at JAR2. Um, next slide. We go to the next slide, please. So post-COVID, we organized a lab to where we had everything set up in the lab so the students would come in, they would go to their stations, and they would stay there. They wouldn't walk around the room. Um, we have sanitizing stations set out throughout the lab area, so we're sanitizing. And the bottom picture is when we move into the OR to do their surgeries, they're gowned and gloved and separated back-to-back to surgeons, so we got them spaced out there. Our next slide, as you can see, we've divided up our anesthesia teams as they came in um, to have space in the lab um, so we don't have all 60 people in lab at once. Uh, table in between, um, it's an anesthesia student and a surgery student that works together. Um, they do their anesthesia and we prep them and we move into surgery. And I think Dr. Bussier is gonna take the rest of the slides. Yes, I'm gonna move over to the next slide. So 
what Jimmy said is that, yeah, we had tons of people in there before, and now we had to reduce it to now we have uh, teams of uh, six students coming in at a time, which is a much smaller number, which makes it so uh, much easier for us instructors uh, to do one-on-one -on -one teaching, uh, spending more time, you know, teaching them, each and every one of them. So that one-on-one -on -one teaching uh, really brought back this idea of uh, trying, you know, we're trying at the college, Dean Thompson's really uh, uh, pushing for this, and it's an amazing thing to be able to start assessing those clinical skills earlier before the student get to the clinic, actually, in their fourth year. So I went back on that idea. They approached me last year, but it, it's a bit chaotic when there's like 40 people in there, so it would have been difficult. But with now the smaller amount of students, uh, one-on-one -on -one teaching, I went back to this idea and with Jimmy, uh, we discussed how we could make this possible. We got very enthusiastic. We started uh, with four skills this year. We'd never done it before in the anesthesia uh, course. And um, we, we build the skills forms, the skills assessment form, and we can uh, click on this slide. There's a few pictures that should pop out. Yeah, build the skills. Uh, we trained our instructors because we also needed to train the instructor on how to assess those. And uh, we also trained our students. You know, of course, there were the, the regular lectures, but we made much more uh, material available online so they don't have to be in the lab and watch a demonstration and so we can keep moving with the slides and I'll go on to explaining the we had a few labs where we practiced but we limited the time to 30 minutes at a time so we didn't have to uh, be in there for too long and once the practice was done we started the assessments of the skills and we're gonna move on to the next slide after that. That's the last picture and that's that, yeah. And we started the assessment of those skills and I'll take just one example. It was how to, um, how to test the anesthesia machine before it's used. Uh, and we were so pleasantly surprised with how prepared the student were. Uh, we were not expecting that they would not only know their material that much, but mastered it. And they were so well prepared ahead of time that when they came into the lab, uh, they were in and out in about 10, 15 minutes for most of them because uh, they felt responsible of their knowledge. That's what we noticed. Uh, they were graded on those skills. Not only those skills are skills that they acquired, like they can check them out of their list, but also it's part of their uh, final grade. So I think that really helped them uh, seeing the video before being very well prepared when they came in, they knew what they were gonna do. And I would say that from the student side, I got a few feedback and we're still ongoing, you know, doing this in the process, the lab isn't done, but I got a feeling of accomplishment for them, uh, much more um, uh, in touch with the reality of their, you know, for future career, because it's it makes the material that they're learning much more concrete. Uh, so these are just examples at the lab of, you know, machine assessment, placing IV catheter, intubation, that kind of stuff, all broken broken up in different steps. And if we can move on to the next next slide, there's more picture over there. And on you'll see there, you know, all those people around the students looking serious. These are the instructors, and we're literally assessing. Um, um, those students every time they do something. We have to train ourselves not to prompt them, be very you know, quiet while they're doing it, 
But once they're done, we can give them direct feedback. And we feel very privileged that to, to be able to have this time with them one-on-one. -on -one. It's, uh, it's almost a luxury in these days with uh, such large uh, classes of students. So, and it's very, uh, it's also very valorizing because we realize how much they, they know their stuff. And so what we've been teaching them, they, they're, they're progressing. We see their progress, you know, day to day. And so it's been really, uh, it's been a game changing. And so uh, we really are gonna keep this for the next year. It's a total new format that we're not gonna let go even, you know, when COVID disappears, hopefully. Uh, we're gonna keep this new format because we found so many advantages uh, to this one. So that's what we had to say today about anesthesia and surgery labs at UT. Great, thanks very much, uh, Genevieve and Jimmy. So good to see the way uh, you're able to provide uh, that hands-on experiential training, uh, but do so safely. And, and uh, really good to hear that the students have done so well uh, through this uh, new approach. So I hope it uh, continues to work well in future years. Next, I'd like to uh, invite Dr. Scott Sensman, if you would, uh, to introduce the extension programs we're gonna hear about today. Thank you, Dr. Cross. So we've got a couple of rock stars that have been working very hard in extension to tell you a little bit about uh, what they've been doing, and Dr. Jenny Ivey and Mr. Aaron Fisher. And we'll start off with Dr. Ivey, uh, just a little bit about her. She's an assistant professor in the Department of Animal Science and serves as the equine extension specialist for the state. Her research and extension interests include nutritional uh, exercise and management interventions to improve equine well-being along with the impact of owner knowledge on equine management. She serves on the American Youth Horse Council Board of Directors, the Eastern National 4-H Horse Roundup Committee, and the Equine Science Society Exercise Science Committee. So Jenny, I'll turn it over to you to tell them a little bit about your horse in service. Thank you, Dr. Sensman. Um, and thanks a lot for thinking of the animal science group as uh, we go through this. And also thank you to Dr. Cross for having us and. Um, allowing us to share some of these best practices amongst the uh, different arenas within the Institute. Um, so if I could have the first slide uh, pulled up, please. So throughout the month of October, um, the animal science specialists um, across all the different species really came together um, to deliver our annual in-service training. And so obviously with everything happening um, within the COVID pandemic, we weren't sure for a while whether we would be able to have these in services as we traditionally do. And so um, after talking with Dr. Schrick um, and our extension administration, and also with a lot of the agents, we decided to go ahead and host these in person. And so obviously um, as we work to be able to manage um, the COVID restrictions, it really made us have to um, think outside of the box. Um, and I really give a lot of credit to the specialists that came together to say that we really wanted to be dedicated to keeping the agents and the attendees safe and ourselves safe, um, and also be able to think about ways that we could deliver this hands-on training to the agents um, that's so important. And so the image that you see here, um, uh, myself and Dr. Strickland um, are working with uh, agents out at Ames Plantation um, in an outdoor arena you know, where everybody can stay distanced. Um, and talk about how to body condition score and evaluate horses. And then we utilize these um, in some different scenarios that we'll talk about in a few minutes um, to be able to give some of that hands-on opportunity and talk about ways that we've really been able to apply those best management practices um, within the counties. And so um, if we could go to the next image, please. 
Um, and so, like I mentioned, you know, we really kind of had to think outside of the box a little bit. And so being able to maintain our distancing guidelines, but also be able to open this to all of the agents um, across the state with specific interest for ANR and 4-H, um, we weren't able to use some of our traditional arenas. So um, in this picture, we were getting set up um, over at MTREC in Spring Hill, um, where we normally would have had those trainings in the conference room. Um, but because of that distancing, we needed to move over to the bull cell barn. So it took us a little bit to think about maybe how we could make this arena work and troubleshoot um, the fact that it's not temperature controlled and, and volume and dust and some other things that, uh, you know, we were not necessarily always thinking about in a traditional format. And so another component to this is that because we were so dedicated to having it in person um, and being able to have the flexibility to be able to move outside um, and work with some of the catering guidelines, sometimes the connectivity um, was not the best for us to be able to stream it. And so, um, you know, it, it's almost one of those things where we can't have um, the best of all the world. So we thought that this was the best approach for this one at this point um, and allowed us to troubleshoot and really be present in the moment um, to be able to talk with the agents and deliver that training face-to-face. -face. If we could go to the last image, please. And so uh, one of the great things I think about the fact that we were able to do this live is the benefit of hands-on learning. And I know at least for me and my program, um, and in talking to the other animal science specialists, we've really missed the opportunity to connect with people and get our hands dirty and be able to, to actually look and feel and touch and talk about what that means. And so um, a great credit to Katie Mason, who uh, our beef nutrition specialist who did this kind of hay analysis demonstration um, but again, you know, moving things outside, being able to allow the agents um, the opportunity to touch some uh, different pieces and be able to think about what that actually meant um, with regard to taking that back to the county and their producers. And so I mentioned earlier our scenario activity, um, and this was really a way for the specialists, um, Dr. Reinhardt, Dr. Strickland and myself to try to think about how we could maybe reprogram a little bit differently. And so we actually took scenarios that we had helped with, um, with agents in different counties and pose them to the agents in a group scenario environment. So it allowed for some of that camaraderie that we've been missing and some of that face-to-face -face interaction, um, but in a way that we could all remain safe um, and distance to, to keep everyone's health at the forefront. And so um, it was really great to see how the agents came together and were able to network and you know, kind of hearing some of the discussions really made us very happy that we went through those efforts to get back to that face-to-face -face environment. Um, and also it was really great to see um, Dr. Echelkamp did some milking procedure uh, demonstrations and just to be able to have a, a different insight um, outside of the virtual environment that we've been in. So it was a, a big success and thanks again to everyone who made that possible. Thanks very much, Dr. Ivy. And then I uh, wanna introduce Mr. Aaron Fisher. Uh, he's a youth livestock and equine specialist in the Department of Animal Science and Aaron provides leadership to statewide youth and animal science extension programs. This includes educational programs, judging contests and animal exhibitions. Uh, without him, we would not have had a lot of our livestock shows this year. And just wanna let him show you a little bit about what he went through. Aaron. Thank you, Dr. Sensenman. Uh, and if you wanna put up the first, uh, I, I, I uh, pictured that'd be great. Uh, I, first, I just, uh, I just want to say that these youth animal science events uh, uh, were I, 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 because of great um, commitment from the count, uh, I, I, county extension agents, I, 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 specialists, uh, and I, many other people that 
really worked on the uh, planning of these um, um, youth events would, uh, and so I uh, state uh, sheep expo was the first uh, in-person event we did in, I think it was August 7th and 8th. And we really started having uh, discussions in um, mid June for uh, if we're able to have these, how might we uh, be able to do it? What might we uh, I, I, I change to be able to I, I, I safely host livestock events? Uh, and quite honestly, it was probably mid-July, which is just a couple of weeks before uh, Sheep Expo, that we really came to the final decision of, okay, uh, yes, we're going to, we're going to, we're going to try to have uh, some of these. Uh, and so um, we, um, throughout the fall, we held sheep, goat, and uh, dairy cattle shows. Uh, between the uh, three shows, there were 234 youth that uh, showed 815 animals. Um, individual shows were were probably down a, a, a little bit, but I, uh, not as much as what one uh, I, I might expect. And so just a couple of, of the measures that we did that we, we don't typically do, as you can see in the uh, picture, all the, uh, all the youth out there are I, 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 wearing masks. Uh, and we I, uh, did our best to try to keep them uh, uh, spaced, whether it was in the lineup area or the show ring, all the staff were masked and even all the, all the judges were also very good about, about wearing masks. We restructured several areas like, and, and did several things differently than we normally do, like the Skittlethon, the lineup, and, it, and even check in, weigh in just to maximize opportunities for uh, uh, social distancing, uh, whenever possible, we uh, I, I, I spread out the uh, uh, pinning area at uh, Sheep Expo. We were actually able to uh, only pin people in every other pin, uh, so that really kind of maximized the space there. Uh, put up uh, uh, signs to uh, 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 encourage hand washing, social distancing. Uh, encouraged high-risk individuals not not to even come, and then uh, we also uh, 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 typically after the show we'll have an uh, awards ceremony for uh, premier exhibitor and skillathon, and so we just decided not to do that this year. That was one more place where people would uh, uh, gather together, uh, and we. I, I wanted youth and uh, families to go ahead and uh, I leave as, uh, as soon as possible. Uh, and then you, you can throw up the uh, uh, second picture. Um, and I, I, thought, uh, I thought this would be a uh, fun picture to show. In the sheep show, there's a, a costume class where the youth and, uh, and the sheep dress up. And so here we can say, uh, yeah, sheep expo where even, even, even the sheep wore masks. Uh, and then you can put up the uh, third picture. Um, I, uh, for the most part, I, I, uh, families seem to be pleased with the opportunity 
uh, to be there. And we're uh, very good about, about, uh, about following uh, uh, procedures. It just seemed that they were just um, happy to be there. Uh, and a lot of the typical show problems that we always have uh, seem to be very um, minimal. Uh, this is even true for those families who seem to always have a controversy following them. Uh, it, it just really was not was uh, uh, was not uh, uh, that big of a deal this year because everybody seemed just pleased uh, 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 to be there. Uh, we also held three state 4-H judging contests in August: uh, uh, livestock judging, meat judging, and uh, uh, dairy judging. I uh, uh, due to not being able to host host events on uh, campus, uh, we were able to work with the um, um, Wilson County Fair. Uh, and so we moved those two to the Wilson County Fair. Uh, and so the partnership with the staff at uh, the Wilson County Fair and the Wilson County um, Extension Office was just uh, uh, great and really uh, uh, contributed to the uh, success. There were uh, 76 youth that, that I, I, I judged in these in, uh, uh, in these three contests. As you can see in the picture, uh, we uh, I required youth to wear masks all the time, uh, except for when they were given um, reasons. Uh, for the most part, we were also able to spread it. I, 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 when they weren't in small groups like this, judging when, when they were uh, I, I, all together, we were able to spread them out where they really weren't uh, I, uh, very close. Um, and we didn't have the uh, ceremony afterwards, uh, which it's not a good thing to not be able to recognize the youth, but we just felt that was one more uh, 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 a congregation area that we could uh, do without this year. And I uh, just like the shows, uh, everyone just seemed pleased to be there and uh, and to be able to go through these, uh, these uh, uh, state events in person. Great. Thanks so much, uh, Aaron and Jenny. I know the agents uh, certainly appreciated the hands-on training opportunity, and I guarantee the parents and the youth uh, appreciated the extra time and effort to, to enable them to participate in, uh, in some of these youth events, Aaron. So thanks uh, for making those possible. Our final uh, presenter today is Dr. Sharon Jean-Philippe and uh, Dr. Beal and Dr. Steyer both are tied up today. So I agreed to introduce Sharon and it's, it's really a privilege to do so. Uh, many of you know Sharon, she's an associate professor in the Department of Forestry, Wildlife and Fisheries. And she's the one that does our uh, tree programs, urban, urban horticulture programs, uh, urban tree programs actually. So uh, Sharon, thank you so much for joining us. And if you would uh, share a little bit about some of the experiences that you've had in your class uh, this fall. Thank you so much, Dr. Carlson. I would love to. Um, just for all that don't know, Urban Forestry Concentration, it officially started back in 2012. And the concentration is pretty interdisciplinary. It emphasizes arboriculture, horticulture, and landscape management, just to name a few. When you think about defining the urban forest, it's the sum of all woody and associated vegetation. So what does that mean? We have trees and shrubs and bushes and all the like that appear in our residential, our commercial and natural areas across cities, towns and municipalities. Um, I teach a whole host of courses specifically um, 
during the fall block, we have a forestry fall block. One course in particular that I would like to highlight is practical arboriculture. And this course is where, uh, has been structured to where students participate in experiential opportunities that mimic on the job training. Topics covered in this course are chainsaw safety, plant healthcare, both above and below, and advanced tree climbing techniques. We typically host this course out at the UT Arboretum. Um, and at the Arboretum, students are given real world problems and they work together as a field crew to complete task assigned. Here is an image right here. Last week, we had a really large white oak fall across a walking path. And um, unfortunately, it took out at least five or six other very small trees. Students thoroughly went through and assessed the site they look for probable, possible, or um, imminent hazards and then develop a flexible work plan. There's another image of the actual work done as my great picture person flipping back and forth. Um, now, prior to COVID, safety was imperative and during COVID, it was definitely um, number one on our um, on all of our minds and during specifically our chainsaw safety course we made sure that we never shared chainsaws that we socially distanced and that we were always practicing safe safety first and if you could bring up that image three two four thank you so here's where we're having one of our safety talks well before we ever get out and 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 start today everybody's always safely apart from each other and we we're ready to always start that day what we want to leave you with is one last video um, a video that will highlight something that i i think students and myself this is like the the best of the best where um i teach advanced street climbing to these students and the, a number of these students have never climbed before and um, this is, by the time we get to this point, this is advanced tree climbing, and we would like to share a short video of their experiences. You can go ahead and play the video. Thanks so much, Sharon. Uh, it's really cool to see uh, these students in action, and I know it's really important to their um, academic careers, so thank you for sharing that. Um, Dr. Cross uh, did need to drop off. He um, has a UT system meeting that he has to attend. Um, so I know on behalf of him and myself, I want to thank all those who presented today. These are just 
really, really interesting and unique ways that we are addressing uh, just the important academic pieces of providing our students a good experience in the midst of a pandemic. So thanks so much uh, to all for sharing. It looks like um, that we really don't have any questions today. So um, I think we'll go ahead and just sign off for today. And uh, well, I hope everybody has a wonderful weekend. And again, go Vols. We hope it's a better Saturday than last Saturday. Take care.